Bow your heads with me and let's talk to this Lord Jesus. We do speak your name and it's a privilege, Lord, to call you by your name, Jesus. Lord Jesus, in your mercy take these moments now and whatever's going on in our lives, wherever we find ourselves, intellectually, morally, spiritually, relationally, in your name, the name we speak, we ask you, Lord, to come and speak to us. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus. One or two here this morning have stone-cold hearts. And you know why. Take a hold of them. Breathe life, joy, passion once again into those hearts. Set them on fire with love for yourself. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen. Well, we're closing out our series on the Great Commission. Just three weeks we've been preaching. This is the third, addressing that issue because we have very strongly participated in the Festival of Hope, Three Rivers Festival of Hope here in Pittsburgh, and encouraged our people to be involved. Over 300 of you went through the Christian Life and Witness course and are participating one way or another in leadership. It's still not too late to get involved. The man who invited me to come, or to go with him, to hear Billy Graham, Franklin's father, asked me on Sunday as I walked out of church, would I go? And Tuesday night of that week, I went. I said yes. And Tuesday night of that week, I met Jesus. And he absolutely transformed my life. A last-minute invitation. Who is it you need to ask to go? And maybe it's even as I speak, you know it's you who needs to go. It's an amazing thing to see an arena filled with people, so many of them who know and love Jesus, from right across all the denominational boundaries, economic boundaries, social boundaries, racial boundaries, age boundaries, all together in one place in the name of Jesus. That in and of itself is a worthwhile experience. Because the church of Jesus Christ is not Christ church at Grove Farm. It's comprised of believers across the breadth of this city and I'm amazed at how many I run into when I somehow surface as a Christian. And then the story I hear from them, often unlikely, unsuspecting, whether it's the guy in the booth at the parking lot or a waitress wearing the silver ring for sexual purity in a restaurant. To gather the people of God in one place is a brilliant experience. One day we'll be in heaven. 
and that will be incomprehensible as we sit here now, to be with millions of millions of millions of people praising the Lord from every tribe, nation, people, language, all together. I trust you're going to be there. It's never too late to get aboard. So we're addressing this issue of the Great Commission, which is often for many individuals as well as churches, the great omission, left unaddressed, left undone, left alone, left behind. And when Jesus gave that great commission, and I want to read some amazing verses to me out of the great commission. It said, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Some doubted. It's hard to comprehend that. Here it says, they have gone to the mountain in Galilee where Jesus commanded them to go. And some have suggested that the 500 that are mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, which all saw Jesus at one time, went to that mountain. So it wasn't just the 11, but the larger company of believers or disciples. Be that as it may, some worshipped. So there is the living Jesus in front of them and they see him and they worship. But some doubt it. Now I have from time to time asked Jesus to show up physically, visibly present to me. Just to wave aside any possible doubt. I know what it is to struggle with doubt. Sometimes severe Sometimes just a nagging, dripping faucet. Here are believers who've gathered to meet the risen Jesus at his command, and still there is hesitancy to believe. The word in its original language about doubt there suggests that it's like a scale at tipping point, making up its mind which way to go. And often that's what doubt looks like. It's not that we've said no, it's not that we've walked away, but we need something else in the balances so it would seem to have us give ourselves altogether to the Lord faithfully and to be obedient to him. As I've looked at several commentaries concerning this issue of doubt, one of them said this, that the, the disciples were not easily given over to believing. That is, they were not just unsuspecting, gullible dupes who just went along with the crowd. That they had a skepticism born of much experience by which the balances were looking for further tipping force. I don't know what you would need. They're looking at Jesus. A second thing is that it demonstrates that the followers of Jesus had not previously planned to conspire together to say the same thing concerning the resurrection of Jesus. There are conspiracy theories concerning his resurrection. All of them 
like other conspiracy theories, suggest that there was an agreement amongst the disciples to say the same thing concerning the resurrection of Jesus. But inasmuch as they are standing there looking at him and still swayed by the influence of skepticism to doubt, it is at least a demonstration that they weren't just a bunch of yes-men all saying the same things or conspiring together deceitfully to mislead anybody else with whom they faced with the gospel. And the third thing, that they did move beyond this doubt and were willing to die for what they believed. Like thousands today are dying, whether it's in China or in the Middle East and other parts of the world, North Africa, willing to die for the name of Jesus, for their faith in Jesus, to doubt. And Paul addresses doubt when he writes to the church in Ephesus in chapter 6. And he speaks about the devil firing his arrows, flaming arrows, at the hearts of believers. And what Paul says is to hoist up the shield of faith. I don't know whether you know this, but the Romans, who were the military force of that generation, used two kinds of shield. One that they used when they were fighting with a sword. So they would hold the shield, smallish round shield, and fight with the sword and fend off, parry off the attacks of the other sword-fighting soldiers. There was one kind of shield. There was another kind of shield that was about five to six feet tall and surfaced with cork. That's C-O-R-K, cork. Don't want any misunderstandings here, cork. And they would soak it with water because one of the offensive attacks, and you've seen this in the movies, is to have hundreds of flaming arrows coming at you. And when that was the attack, they would hoist up that shield and stand behind it. And those fiery arrows would hit the shield and be quenched in the moist cork that surfaced it. That's the shield that Paul is describing, to hoist up the shield of faith and quench the fiery arrows of the evil one. And he comes to shoot arrows of doubt into our hearts, into our minds, into our thought life. And I know what that's like. But one of the sources of doubt is the devil himself who comes to suggest to you that what you're believing is make-believe. That's all he has to say. Or that there are other Christians who you don't like, who you don't approve of, if you think, who you think are phony, maybe even in your own family, and you see the way they behave and act. And you say, well, if that's Christianity, I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know that I want to believe that. I don't know that I want to be a part of that. Doubts come at us as Satan uses all kinds of equipment. He's been around a long time creating all kinds of doubt. So Thomas, one of the disciples, when everybody else says, we have seen the Lord, he says, I won't believe unless I see the nail prints in his hands, hole in his side. I won't believe. 
Well, he had his doubts settled when Jesus turned up, visibly, physically. Scripture says this, Jesus speaking in John's gospel said, Blessed are ye who believe, having seen, but blessed are those who without seeing believe. That presumably is you and me. But the evidence, the reasonable, rational evidence of Jesus being alive is absolutely overwhelming. It's not where I'm spending my time now, but in the presence of the resurrected Jesus, there were still those who doubted. And what's extraordinary, secondly, therefore, is this, that when Jesus commissioned them and told them to go and make disciples of all nations, the doubters were amongst them. Now, what does that suggest to you? The reality that in church, not all of us have the same flaming, virile faith, and therefore some of us justify ourselves in not obeying the Great Commission? That that's people of intellect or exuberance or people who've seriously done their reading and memorizing and know what the issues are and can address them? It would seem to me, and I have experienced this as well, that in being obedient to Jesus, even when the scales are there wavering in your own mind, in your own passions and hearts, when you are obedient, God comes through in a remarkable way. And if you are there now, sitting somewhere out in this audience, and you've got a big question mark about whether you're really going to get serious about the Lord, that is, serve Him with your life, not just acquiesce by coming to worship, singing a few hymns, giving a few dollars, maybe a few hours, but to give it all to him, to surrender it all, to hand it all over to him, and go for it. If that's you, take that first step, that first bold step of declaring to someone else what you do believe. Because even while we've got doubts and questions along the way, there are certain things we really do believe. Go talk about Jesus. Take that step. Let Jesus commission you as one of the doubters to go get it done. See what happens. Come back and let us know. But the third thing is this, the promise of Jesus to be with us always. That's Emmanuel. The last words of Matthew's gospel. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Who can make that promise? That's not just an individual promise to the immediacy of those who are standing around him. But the extended promise to all who believe because of their faith, down through the generations, to the end of this age. This age is still our opportunity of sharing the gospel and of all coming to Christ and yielding our lives to him. We're still in that age, the age of proclamation of the gospel that others may come and believe. Who can make that claim? Jesus, knowing the power of his spirit, knew that in his absence, physically, in one place, spiritually, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he could be in every place and with every believer through every age 
in every circumstance. Always. So when his name is called Emmanuel, God with us, that was the name declared Matthew chapter 1, the beginning of these gospel narratives. Actually, chapter 2. Number 1 is a whole list of names. But the revelation of Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary, his name will be called Emmanuel. God with us. With us to be our Savior. Who can save to the uttermost all who come to him in faith. From the guttermost to the uttermost, said one man. With us, with that gospel, with that good news to rescue the individual. With us when we're in severe trial and pain. Yea, Lord, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. In the midst of it, Emmanuel, God with us. Not just when things are bright and easy, not when everything is calm and everything going fine, but in the midst of the shadow of death, in pain, in anguish, in loss, in distress, to be with us. It's to him we flee. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour I need thee. That's me. That's you. None of us escapes pain. The promise of Jesus to be with us. So whether it's persecution because of our faith. The grace to suffer the indignities done to us in the name of Jesus. I listened to a sermon this week of Pastor Ed speaking of his father, his stepfather, ridiculing him in front of his drinking buddies, the father's drinking buddies. And the grace that God so gave Ed not to retaliate. And it turns out that the father was baiting him to draw him out because he knew who Ed Glover was had watched him grow up. And as he grew up, knew his weakness, his temper, his fierceness. Later the father said, only God could have stopped you coming over the table at me. I believe in him now. God with us in the most severe circumstances. And God with us to the end. To the end. The end of this age, the end of our lives, to be there for us. I've just read a couple of biographies this week from different sources, not in the same book, of dying people who so witnessed to Jesus Christ that the doctors, one of them Jewish, came to believe faith in the living Lord Jesus. Let me tell you about one of them. His name was William Mackay. He was born in Scotland, grew up in Scotland, in a believing family. He was a brilliant young man. Went off to Edinburgh University to train to be a doctor. And as he left home and was packing his suitcase of things together, in those days, one case sufficed for all of it. Today we take 
wagon loads of stuff off to school with our kids. One case sufficed for it all. She took a Bible, wrote his name in it, and her name in it, and a scripture verse, and put that in with his belongings to bolster his faith as he would go off to university in the face of the skepticism and the lifestyle, the known lifestyle of the university students in that day. William McKay fell for the student's influence, became an alcoholic, while as a student. At one point, he joined himself to a group that called themselves the Infidels, spent all his spending money, needed another drink, cast his eyes around his room, saw the Bible, took it and hocked it, brand new Bible, at a P-A-W-N shop, a pawn shop, bought himself another drink. He graduated and with his brilliant mind became one of the great doctors there in Scotland. And what he loved was cases coming in that defied medical aid. He loved to get those who were like at the doorstep of death and bring them back to life, rescue them with medicine. He took pride in that, almost as if it was saying, see God, we don't need you. I'm the master of their destiny as well as mine. Then one day a guy was brought in and he heard about him and rushed to see if there was anything he could do. This man was crushed pretty badly from the waist down. That young man said to the doctor, how long do I have? And the doctor said, well, I guess. And he was going to say whatever. And the, the lad said, I don't want any guesses. Give me a realistic estimate. And the doctor said to him, well, you've got maybe two to three hours. And the lad said to him, I don't mind you telling me the truth, the reality of the circumstance I'm in, because I know Jesus and his blood has washed me from my sin. I know he's in my life and when I die, I will go to be with him in heaven. And I can spend these moments now anticipating that as right there. Dear friend of mine by the name of Chip Nix went into the ministry, got converted similarly, wanted to be a doctor, had some issues, couldn't, <laughs> did like I did, went into the ministry and uh, became a brilliant minister, had some perception issues, went to the doctors, x-rayed his head, and it lit up with cysts all over his brain, tumors. The doctor wept as if he only had and said he's only got several days to live. Chip Nix called me up joyfully, no exaggeration, joyfully. He said, can you believe I'm going to see Jesus in the next few days? How amazing. I'm going to see him. And he was excited about the notion. And when nurses came into, I jumped on the plane, went down to Austin, Texas. When nurses, doctors, whomever came into the ward, he said, I'm on my way home to see Jesus. That's virtually what this lad was saying to William McKay. But the lad said to him, do me a favor. Will you send someone to my lodgings? Gave the address. He said, there's a pay packet there with two weeks' money. Give that to the landlady to cover all my debts and ask her to give you the book and bring it back to me. The doctor said, well, what's the book? He said, she'll know. So the doctor had that done. 
Someone went to the house, found the paycheck, gave it to the landlady, asked her about the book. She knew what it was and where it was, got it for her, her, the, the nurse who went there, brought it back and gave it to the young man. The witness of that young man was so amazing that that arrogant doctor, William McKay, could not get it out of his mind. And he circled back around the wards, went to that ward again and said to the nurse, is the lad still alive? She said, no, he just died. He said, did you find the money? She said, yes. Where is the book? What was it? He said, was it a checkbook? She said, no, the book's under his pillow. The doctor went, put his hand under the pillow, and out came a Bible. And he opened it up, and there was his name, and the name of his mother, and the scripture verse she'd written in that Bible. He took that, put it under his clothing, exited the hospital, went back to his home, knelt down, sobbed and wept and repented and gave his life to Jesus. And became such an impressive preacher and speaker that he ended up quitting medicine and became a preacher like I am. And had such an amazing influence. He wrote a book, really a pamphlet, one of his sermons called Grace and Truth. And this is what got my attention as much as anything I've just told you. One of the men who read that booklet some years later by the name of James Hannington came to faith, became a missionary, and went to Uganda where we at Christ Church have made over a decade of commitment to missionary work where he, James Hannington, became the first bishop in Uganda, and himself was martyred. That's a name that lit up. We've been to Hannington's grave in Uganda. The lad sitting in bed, or lying in bed, dying, bearing witness to Christ, and a faithful mother who'd given a Bible to her renegade son as he became and the amazing grace of God pursuing that man and his preaching being turned into print and reaching another man by the name of James Hannington who became a martyr in Uganda for the gospel of Christ and in whose steps we have walked and gone from this church with aid and preaching with medicine training and teaching came to faith James Hannington, one faithful man at the end of his life, still rejoicing in the assurance of heaven. What about you? Bow your heads with me and let's pray. So Lord Jesus, all authority has been given to you. And you have the authority to command and give charge to us and send us where you will to pay whatever price might be the result, but to see fruit, to see a harvest, a harvest of hope, a destiny of heaven, a great gift from you, 
And thank you, Lord, that it's not just that you have all authority and can command us, but your very presence is with us everywhere we go. We cannot escape you, Lord Jesus, and you will never let us go, and you will never let us down. You will never, ever be our debtor. We owe everything to you. You owe us nothing. You have won everything for us. So for us, Lord Jesus, it is not too late whether to surrender to you right now or to yield our lives as followers in such a way that we will even go and make a phone call today and take someone to hear the gospel. And even in our dying moments, Lord, to be celebrating the good news that heaven is just around the corner, just beyond the veil, just outside the door. Lord, may we finish well, for you will be with us at the end. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.